let's not even talk about how the animals are treated. Let's just ignore that. Let's assume all farm animals are treated amazing. Like they're treated like a celebrity backstage at the Oscars. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contributes tab at bestofaleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Rich Roll podcast, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, Plant-Based News, Mike the Vegan, Jim Hightower, and Climate Vegan on YouTube. I thought I was doing everything I could to, to make a difference in this life, you know, riding my bike, doing all the environmental things, taking short showers, doing this and that. And then I found being out a good environmentalist. Being a good environmentalist. Yes. Yeah. I think half of it was just saying that I'm a, I'm an environmentalist. Uh-huh. That was half of it. You have the bumper stickers and showing up to a Greenpeace event uh-huh. or yeah. I actually, my big thing is my big thing I was proud of is I think I gave $20 or $40 a year to save the wolves from Sierra club uh-huh. without having no idea where the wolves are going. Uh-huh. Um, and then finding out this information and that's the fun journey of finding one thing out after another. And the first big one was that the human caused greenhouse gases is caused more or as much by raising animal agriculture for food than, than all the transportation cars, trucks, boats, planes, all combined. And that's where it just, from there, it... Right. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing, right? So we all kind of operate on this premise that the biggest contributor to kind of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon emissions and all and the like is is basically our use of fossil fuels, right? Like if we can solve the transportation problem, then maybe we can do something good for the planet. But this UN report that you come across that was published in 2008, I think the first one sort yeah. of speaks differently, right? It, 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 it paints a very different picture of what's actually going on. Yeah. I mean, the, again, according to the United Nations food and agriculture organization, animal agriculture, raising animals and their feed crops for food is a larger contributor to greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector, which is huge. Um, but there's actually been more research and, and other analysis on greenhouse gases that actually put the figure much higher. That actually, you know, 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions could potentially be coming from animal agriculture. 51%. And what it, where is transportation on that? Uh, about 13%. Yeah. 51% to 13. Yeah. So it's huge. And, and that. And how much of that is, because when you're talking about carbon emissions, there's all different kinds, right? Like animal agriculture, there's methane and then there's, the sort of carbon emissions that come with the transportation and the manufacturing aspect of it. So when you're saying 51%, that's, that, I assume that's like an all encompassing number that takes into account the whole kind of like, um, you know, chain of production. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's the life cycle analysis. So you're looking at every aspect of animal agriculture from, you know, great, Raising the grains, uh, the CO2 emissions that come from tilling soil, the methane emissions that come from the animal's waste, uh, even respiration, um, the emissions that come from transportation, refrigeration, I mean, the whole life cycle of that product to get to your plate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, carbon dioxide is the big focus. That's what everyone looks at when they're talking about greenhouse gases and global warming. But we have to look at all the other gases like methane, which has a global warming potential 86 times greater than CO2 on a 20-year time frame. Mm-hmm. And we uh, make fun of that because basically it's cow farts, right? But that it's a burps. real problem, yeah, right? Yeah. Bur- uh, burps too. Yeah, how much actually, is, it is, is farting and how much of it is burping? Do it's, we know that? It's, it's, I think it's like <laughs> 80 or 90% burping. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the wow, farting just gets more either. attention because <laughs> it's funny. Say it. Yeah. Um, but, That's you know, amazing. big thing too, it's their waste. You know, they're their waste is full of nitrous, produces nitrous oxide, which is 296 times more destructive than CO2. Um, 
And then, you know, there's sulfuric oxide, there's these ammonias that come out of it. I mean, there's just so many damaging gases that come out of animal agriculture. But the, one of the biggest things is the fact that these animals need so much land either to graze on or to have their feed crops grown on. And so mm-hmm. they have to clear forests and forests are these natural carbon sequestering, you know, parts of our ecosystem. Um, and so they clear the forest to grow grains. And so now you've lost the ability to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's the, that's a huge, huge part of the problem. Right. I mean, right now it seems like it's quite popular, uh, you know, this idea of, of eating grass fed beef, right? Like, Oh, it's just, like, I have friends that will say, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but I make sure that the, the meat that I eat is sustainably raised and it's ethically raised and it's all grass fed. And with that comes this idea that um, that's less deleterious to the environment. And in fact, maybe even further than that, that they're actually doing some kind of good, right? So we talk, can we, I, I want to talk more about the, you know, the, the movie and all of that, but I would like to like plant a flag on this issue for a moment. Yeah, well, definitely. Well, so that, that's the ironic thing, you know, I eat grass fed beef and, and ironically it's, it's actually worse in a lot of ways. And it's not just, uh, with the greenhouse gases, a big, huge one that really affects me as far as personally is I really care about the wildlife. It takes on average for factory farms only around, I th- believe, what, two, two acres per cow because it's just mm-hmm. so efficient. You can grow huge. Uh, right. If there's one thing that factory farming does really, really well is create economies of scale. Right? They're going to use the least amount of resources, the least amount of land, water, f- food, everything like that to blow up an animal big enough to eat. Exactly. And that's what people don't realize. It's so efficient. And that's what it, it's efficient with all the natural resources. It's terrible for the cows and terrible for the animals, but for the rest of the rest of the wildlife, Rather than two acres per cow, now you're talking grass-fed. You're talking anywhere between 10 acres to 50 acres. Or even higher. Which the farmer said on our film, 50 acres in Wyoming or Montana. And that's 50 acres for one single cow. Mm -hmm. Imagine going on 50 acres and the entire, the only wildlife on there is uh, one cow. You have no other wild horses, no other bears, no other wolves. And this is why all the uh, wildlife is being depleted through these pasture Right, because you can't, you got to get rid of all that other wildlife in order for the cattle to safely graze and not be sort of preyed upon. And it's not only uh, predators, but it's to compete with the resources of which few we have left for the grass and now the water. Uh But there's much, you just can't have wild horses right now. There's more wild horses in captivity. Uh, that gets rounded up, then there are free, free roaming. Right. To remove them so the cattle can graze. Right. right. So, so my, my understanding is that there's all this sort of state or federal controlled land that gets leased to, uh, cattle farmers so that they can, you know, sort of graze their cattle on these grasslands, even though they don't own it. You know, they, they, they lease it from the federal government. It's subsidized. So they get a great rate on it. And the federal government or the state comes in and kind of clears the land. Or if there's a problem with wild horses or other predators, they can have them come in and have them removed. Is that that's a fair that, yeah, characterization? That's exactly what's happening. Um, I mean, the, the USDA has actually, um, I forget what they call it now. I think it's called the wild animal services. And they will, if a rancher has a problem with, a, you know, their cows being attacked by mountain lions or bears or coyotes, they can call up the USDA and say, hey, I'm having a problem. And the USDA will come out and exterminate those animals. And they mm-hmm. do it. I mean, they've, they've done it in Washington. They, you know, cows were attacked on public lands. And the USDA in Washington had completely eliminate, eliminated an entire pack of wolves because, mm-hmm. you know, one cow was attacked. So... 
I mean, this is the one of the leading causes of species extinction and eradication in the American West is from cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, the, the ranchers see them as perceived threats, and then yeah, but the you know it goes all the way down to you know ravens and you know ground squirrels and you know prairie dogs. I mean, just animals who you would never see as a threat to this industry. Well, the industry sees it as a threat, and so you know they can't coexist. They've got to be eliminated, and that's grass fed. When people talk about grass fed, it's like. Well, you know, the wolves being annihilated, the reason why wolves are, you know, allowed to be hunted in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana is because of the cattle industry. It's not because they're, you know, a threat to human beings. There's, there's been no reported attacks of deaths of human beings by wolves in the United States. Mm. So it's like, why are we hunting them? Right, right, right. And, and, and beyond that is the simple, obvious fact that, uh, you know, the whole grass fed thing is really kind of, it's not a solution to our problem. I mean, we just don't, there's, I mean, 50, what did you say? 50 acres per 10 to per, 50 or even per, more. Per, yeah. I mean, per cow. like we don't have cow. the land to do it. It's just, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. There's no way that we could marshal the resources to make that available for everyone. So it becomes kind of an elitist thing, right? Like, yeah, that's what if I, you can afford. We it had, uh, it's not, it's not, if yeah, it's, it, when we, people talk about sustainable, they really should be talking about privilegeable. Yeah. Privilegeable. Mm-hmm. You know, because a, that, they can afford it. B that you have, yeah, some other resources to, to be able to, well, big one is afford it. Yeah. And then, yeah, what you're saying about land use, it's right now about half the United States, lower 48 is used for growing animals whether it's growing their feed crops or their actual grazing. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, factory farming is relatively very efficient compared to, you know, grass fed or open range, uh, grazing. So yeah, if we switched over and everybody wanted to do grass fed, we simply don't have the land for it. Right. Um, and then the other thing too, is that most of the United States land is not suited for grazing livestock. You know, there's, there's sections in the Midwest that are, you know, native prairies that could potentially sustain what they did historically sustain large herds of herbivores. Um, but those soils have been degraded and they're, you know, now all grown with corn and soybeans that are fed to livestock. So it's like, mm-hmm. we don't really even have that. The American West really isn't designed for having livestock, um, didn't support large herds in the past. So we just, we don't live in the ecosystem. And so what they end up doing, yeah, is they clear forests on the East Coast and they, you know, run animals on degraded land in the West that were never designed to have wild animals or to have large herds. Um, and so, yeah, it just continues this degradation. It's the land, it is our wisdom, it's the land that shines us through. It's the land, it feeds our children, it's the land, you cannot own the land, the land owns you. Now you've probably heard people talk about how much fresh water is used for hydrofracking. A hundred billion gallons of fresh water a year at a time when Flint, Michigan doesn't have any. And in California, it's gotten so bad, the, the wealthy don't even have enough water to spray the homeless people off their front stoops. 
so they've had to start using a poking stick. It's really, it's not good. So $100 billion, that sounds like, a, a, I mean, 100 billion gallons, that sounds like a lot. But animal agriculture, raising the animals that we eat just in the U.S., uses 34 trillion gallons of water per year. That's 340 times as much as fracking. And we're giving the cows the good water, too. They don't get the crappy stuff. You, you, you don't hear about the cows getting the sh- Flint, Michigan water with lead poisoning and condoms floating in it. No, no, we don't, we don't want to fuck up our sausage patties. So, so we we give the cows the top shelf stuff, you know. Because when was the last time the people of Michigan were in my McRib sandwich, huh? Huh? I'll tell you, never, never. They've never been in my McRib. So, fuck them. And, and our corporate media is fantastically pathetic on this. If and when they mention conserving water, they say you should put on, put in a, a low-flow shower head, you know? <laughs> Don't flush the toilet. If it's yellow, let it mellow. <laughs> Yet you never hear them mention meat production. One quarter pounder uses 660 gallons of water to be made. Eating one hamburger is the equivalent of showering for two months. <laughs> Animal agriculture uses 80 to 90% of our water. How about we take the, the low flow shower heads that we bought and we, we put them in a sack and then we use that to beat the <laughs> out of a corporate media executive. Because that would help the planet, I think. And I know some of you are thinking, oh crap, here comes the I'm a vegetarian and cows are people too, man. <laughs> But no, let's not even let's not even talk about how the animals are treated. Let's just ignore that. Let, let's assume all farm animals are treated amazing. Like they're treated like a celebrity backstage at the Oscars. You know, each cow is fawned over and given swag bags with free <laughs> shit in it, just like Oculus Rift goggles and Apple watches, and they're like, oh, another Apple watch. And, and there's exotic berries laid out, and Steve Gutenberg is there to just caress the cow's balls. Just, just lightly. Lightly caresses balls. I don't know why it's Steve Gutenberg, but I feel like it has to be Steve Gutenberg. Point is, let's ignore the treatment of animals. Still, animal agriculture in its current form is horrible. It's destroying us. It's responsible for 18% of greenhouse gases, more than the combined exhaust from all transportation. It's the cause of 65% of all human-related nitrous oxide emissions, which has 296 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. Cows alone produce 150 billion gallons of methane per day from their farting and belching. This is pure insanity. Here's another way to think about it, okay? Imagine if it weren't cows and pigs. Imagine if it were instead Romanian people, all right? Ro Romanian people were coming over here, using half our land, drinking half our water, filling the air with greenhouse gases from their farts, and ejecting 116,000 pounds of per second, per second. Even my uncle Milo doesn't produce half that. If Romanians were doing that, we would not just begrudgingly go about our days like, oh, 
fucking Romanians. Uh, why do they have to poop so much? No, we wouldn't be cool with it. If, if you're like me, you'd tell them to stop. And if you're like Donald Trump, you would build a wall around them. <laughs> either way, either way, it wouldn't be okay. But it's not the Romanians. It's cows, pigs, and chickens, right? And so your establishment media will never mention it. And we'll just happily march to our death as a species. Animal agriculture is the leading cause of species extinction, ocean dead zones, water pollution, and habitat destruction. But on the bright side, you have to admit, it will be pretty funny if humans go extinct because no matter what we were told, we were still like, hamburgers are really yummy. <laughs> I like, sometimes I wrap bologna around like a rotisserie chicken, and then I stick like a beef jerky up its butt, and it's, it's yummy in my tum-tum. <laughs> Imagine if when you went to the fast food restaurant, they, ch they, they, they charged the actual cost of the burger. So let's see, the quarter pounder comes to $2 and 700 gallons of fresh water it took to make it at Dasani prices. That's about $23,000. Oh, and, and also we now give you the 100,000 pounds of shit that the cow produced. So uh, paper or plastic? <laughs> paper doesn't hold up so well. <laughs> we need to eat a lot less meat or we will die. The cows will have farted their way to revenge. <laughs> we, will, we will go out in a blaze of sausage links and Baconator sandwiches. But I don't care because I'm actually on the animal side on this one. I think it's about time we humans tapped out. I mean, what have we, what have we done? We invented the nuclear, nuclear weapons, the idea of arresting someone for being homeless, uh, chocolate-covered roaches, and puppetry of the penis. So, so I say eat all the meat you want. I'm rooting for death by cow farts, okay? And, and one day our tombstone will read, they lived by the happy meal and they died by the happy meal. <laughs> So Alan Savory has since gone on to, you know, do a very popular TED Talk, and he's kind of been championed as, as this guy who has uh, these novel ideas about how we can solve our, you know, uh, sort of soil degradation problem. And that solution comes in the form of more cattle, right? <laughs> Basically, like if we increase cattle grazing on grasslands that they, through their sort of, um, you know, just by living there and and uh, you know, chewing up the grass and stepping on it and doing what they do, that this will somehow, uh, what's the word, like um, regenerate, regenerate, the regenerate the soil and make it more arable, yeah. right? So, and there's a lot of, he's got a lot of support for this he's idea. There are a support. lot of people that are rallying behind this, and I see this argument all the time on the internet. So what's really going on? Uh, you know, if, if anything that we see 
as a rebuttal to the film or as a solution is Alan Savory. And we have actually Alan Savory in the film, but we yeah, it got yeah. to the you point. You don't spend a lot of time. You kind of refer to him and then you move on. We did, and we had a whole section on him. We went really in deep into research the entire thing, um, the whole intensive holistic grazing. And then the more you look into it, the more logically you look on it, into it, it is so absurdly ridiculous that we said, you know, let's just tell the story of who this guy is. So to realize, you just get caught up down some rabbit hole with it. Uh, it's well, just, it just takes a little bit of while. So right now we're actually working on it. It might only be six minutes, but six minutes in a 90 minute film to focus on something that's so absurd. That was the most mm-hmm. thing. It's like, should we even address this? Cause this guy just did one, one Ted talk, but you know, looking back, maybe we could have done it more, um, addressed it, but we're going to do a follow up 10 minute, uh, to address to to address that in a funny, entertaining way, um, but basically a huge issue of what it comes down to is water. That's a huge thing. Water, and then the other thing is that his his method of intensive grazing is that it's to mimic what it was when the bison roamed and when when wildlife used to roam when the soil was regenerative. And here's the big thing that was left out of that's left out of this theory is that back then it was a complete loop cycle. You had your bears, you had your wolves, you had your predators. They die naturally. You didn't have humans then. So what happened is they would live, they would trample, they would eat all um, you know, the resources and then give it back to the earth through death and through this whole cycle. But once you put humans into the equation... Now you're actually, you know, they're essentially these machines sucking up the nutrients, sucking up uh, the nutrients from the soil, sucking up all the water at a ridiculous rate, and then you t- remove it from from of where it's supposed to be generated. Now you mm-hmm. just sucked out thousands, millions of gallons of water, all the nutrients from the soil, and you're putting on someone's plate in L.A. or you know, California. Right. So it's no longer a closed loop because you're closed removing loop. the animal. The animal isn't dying on the land. It's being removed so that it, it becomes food. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, like a, a plumbing problem. And all of a sudden you stick a huge hole into it and then the water just gushes out. And so, and that's the, that's the big one. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's essentially strip mining soil and it's, it's mm-hmm. like any other form of agriculture. People would say, though, oh, well, there's examples where it does work. And it's like, okay, well, where are those places that it works? And it'll be probably coastal areas that have a lot of rainfall. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, (laughs) coastal areas that have a lot of rainfall actually will grow forests. And when you want to regenerate an ecosystem, allow the native forest to come back. It it sequesters (laughs) carbon so much better than grasslands. doesn't produce methane in, in the rates that livestock do. But as Kip said, it really just comes down to the resources. I mean, there's this whole regenerative movement and um, they say, oh, well, we can regenerate, you know, lands that have been degraded using this method. But again, they have to look at what resources they're bringing into the equation. They're bringing in millions of gallons of water, whether they're mm-hmm. pumping it out of the, the ground or they're trucking it in. And they're also bringing in feed. Well, my background's in organic agriculture. I spent close to 10 years developing organic farms. And so most of the time when you start a farm, you're importing in truckloads full of nutrients, whether it's in the form of animal manures or if you're going veganic, you know, uh, vegetable composts like alfalfa meal or soybean meal or kelp meal. But you're importing mm-hmm. resources from somewhere else where they really should belong. Mm-hmm. So with this holistic management grazing, 
they're bringing in water. So it's a cow's drinking 30 to 40 gallons a day and you've got 400 cows on there. I mean, so you're dealing with, you know, thousands of yeah, gallons of water. of water. And so you want to regenerate an area, take all that water instead of running cattle, just irrigate the land. Watch how amazing it regenerates. Oh, well, look at that. You brought in water. Right, so, right, right. so this whole idea that, oh, the cows are bringing in some magical aspect of this. No, you're you're running, you're actually wasting water. You're running it through the cows and then the cows are urinating. And so there's now the land is being irrigated and now it's getting fertilizer. It's like, take all those resources that in, because every time you run nutrients through uh, an animal or a plant, it loses about 25%. Mm-hmm. So you're losing 25 to 50% of all the nutrients that you just brought into this system by running through an animal. Just put it on the land or even better, just leave the land alone. And there's been, you know, dozens and dozens of actual scientific research where they've taken an acre or five acres or 50 acres or 500 acres of degraded land, fenced it off, removed all the cattle, and it bounces back. The Mm. biodiversity goes up, the wildlife comes back. I mean, it's just incredible, just on even just one acre. You have the surrounding area, you know, that's grazed by livestock, it's totally degraded. winning documentary Cowspiracy, which explores the link between animal agriculture and environmental destruction, has finally been brought to Netflix, with Leonardo DiCaprio named as executive producer. Unilad, who have 17 million viewers on Facebook, also released a video called The Dangers of Industrialized Animal Agriculture. As a result, there have been many up-and-coming eco-friendly companies that specialize in meat replacement food products. Impossible Foods is one such company that last month received $108 million worth of investment. In fact, Google back in July tried to make an offer for the company. Google reportedly made an offer to acquire startup Impossible Foods for between $200 to $300 million. But Patrick Brown, CEO of the company, turned down that offer and has recently been explaining his motivations behind setting up the company. Our challenge was to uh, make a product that uh, would appeal to the hardcore meat lover. We wanted to have a product that would deliver all the pleasures that people get from eating meat uh, without any of the baggage. No cholesterol, antibiotics, hormones, E. coli. They are already testing the products in undercover food trucks and plan to release the first items in 2016. Other similar companies that receive funding this year include Modern Meadow, Beyond Meat, Follow Your Heart and Hampton Creek. We started the company to say, if you could start over in food, what the hell would that look like? And we think if you start over in food, the thing that's a little bit better for the body, that's a little bit better for the environment, would taste better and we'd be, would be less expensive. We just launched 36 new products uh, this month. Uh, we'll be launching a lot more next year. This food startup revolution has coincided with a trend emerging within healthcare. It is fascinating to see and, and exciting that there are so many nutritionally minded and even plant-based physicians. I mean, that segment of the medical industry seems to be growing 
rather quickly. Hundreds of physicians around the world now recommend a whole foods, plant-based diet after looking into the science. The more you move towards a whole foods, plant-based diet, and the more you exercise, and the more you meditate, and the more love and support you have, the better you feel. 14 of the 15 leading causes of death have now been scientifically linked to eating animal products. And what's more, plant-based eaters have the lowest risk of developing all of those leading causes of death. Those who tend to not have diabetes despite high carb intake are vegans. The simple fact that a plant-based diet could just change your life. This isn't just an option. I mean, this is proven science that is powerful. In fact, I find it more powerful than any pill that I have. Another physician who recommends this way of eating is Dr. Michael Greger. In 2015, Dr. Kim Williams became president of the American College of Cardiology. He was asked why he follows his own advice to eat a plant-based diet. I don't mind dying, Dr. Williams replied. I just don't want it to be my fault. Breaker is currently the director of public health at the Humane Society of the United States. He runs the popular Nutrition Facts website, which provides free updates on the latest in nutrition research and recommends against eating animal products. Gregor has also released a new book this year titled How Not to Die. And in the city Gregor is from, a new vegan medical center is opening in November, which will address health issues through plant-based nutrition. Other centers and healthcare providers that now tout the benefits of plant-based diets for health include but are not limited to Kaiser Permanente, the Physicians Committee, and Wellness Forum Health. Here's to your health. It's the greatest wealth. We are right on track. Away is leading man. Don't you wanna be? What you eat, that's all you need. The world today is a dream. Life is a precious gift. I'm Mike, and today, how going vegan doesn't just help animals, it also helps humans. People are often framing vegans as single issue people, but we're simply not. We're not just two dimensional people. Look, after all, humans are animals, and that's the only reason we care about them. Kidding! So let's explore how veganism benefits human rights by taking a quick look around the world at people that are working in the animal product supply chain, as well as some of the astounding indirect ripple effects of eating animal products. Animal foods purchased by and eaten in the Western world affect the rest of the world, and in many cases contribute to slavery, such as the shrimp slaves of Thailand. Shrimp companies buy people, often Burmese refugees, for a few hundred dollars each, and then they either put them out on fishing boats or they put them in shrimp peeling sheds. A United Nations agency investigated Thailand's main seafood region, Samut Sakhon, and found that 60% of Burmese workers there were victims of forced labor. They include children. By US standards, most are considered slaves. They always told us if we didn't work, they'd shoot us. This shrimp is mostly exported and the Associated Press tracked custom records and found that 40 US brands and 150 stores, including Whole Foods, were carrying shrimp with suspect origins. Whole Foods, of course, 
denies this allegation. Now to the Amazon on the other side of the world. Numbers vary, but according to this World Bank report, approximately 70% of rainforest destruction in the Amazon is due to animal agriculture, which means we are actually displacing tribes to eat meat. Now we often think of the people that are actually cutting down the trees in the rainforest as the evilest of people. But as this 2015 Al Jazeera article mentions, the people that are often cutting down, clearing the rainforest are people that are slaves and debtors. A lot of this slave cleared land is used to grow feed like soy. And the US is importing an increasingly large amount of beef from Brazil. For example, this corned beef in the past has been made from cattle fed soy grown on slave-cleared rainforest land. Of course, large companies like Cargill in the US refuse blame with statements like this from their Minnesota spokeswoman. I think it is unfair of folks to point at Cargill and say Cargill is solely responsible for the actions of other people, AKA, I don't think it's fair to point out that we buy directly from slave owners. I could spend a lot of time on the conditions of slaughter workers around the world, but I would just point to this Cambodian girl who was sold for $250 and was forced to work starting at 3 a.m. all day for virtually nothing. If you really want to get depressed, you can watch that video about her that I will link below. But now you're probably thinking, isn't all of this horrible inhumane treatment also in the garment industry and other agricultural industries? And to that I have to say, yes, vegans should absolutely try and buy fair trade vegan products. But as Human Rights Watch says, there are, quote, systematic human rights violations embedded in meat and poultry industry employment making worker mistreatment distinctly worse and more endemic than other agricultural sectors. And this is also true in developed countries like the US, which brings me to slaughterhouse and factory farm workers. Don't worry, I'm not gonna show any graphic footage here, just for you. Vegans probably have the least amount of empathy for these type of people, and yes, some of them are psychopaths, as has been made clear by undercover slaughterhouse and factory farm footage, but a lot of them are immigrant workers who don't have much of a choice and often view it as a temporary option. Now, if I go too deep into this, you're just gonna feel like crap and stop watching the video altogether. So let's do this really quick. Starting with air quality, between occupational asthma, bronchitis, and just breathing in a lot of crap, nearly one out of three of these workers have respiratory issues. And according to the CDC, kids around factory farms have increased levels of asthma. Then there's all of the sharp objects and knives. One factory farm nurse said, quote, I could always tell the line speed by the number of people with lacerations coming into my office. Then there's the risk of falling into a toxic manure lagoon like a man from Idaho just did the other day. And finally, there's post-traumatic stress disorder. As one slaughterhouse worker famously said, quote, the worst thing worse than the physical danger is the emotional toll. It is so bad that some researchers deemed it not just a hazardous, but quote, an ultra hazardous activity for psychological well-being. These effects spill into the community, which is why many studies show that the addition of a slaughterhouse leads to a spike in crime, which is often two to four times as much crime. All right, that's it for how horribly workers are treated. Now to some astounding ways that eating animal products can negatively affect humans around you. Would you say that being born with a normal-sized brain is a human right? Well, that right might just be taken away from you if your mother was exposed to grilled meat fumes, also known as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are potent carcinogens that are not produced while grilling plants. As this study shows, exposure to meat fumes during pregnancy leads to a smaller birth weight and a smaller head circumference. And as this other study shows, just living near a restaurant that is grilling meat can increase your lifelong risk of cancer. 
Then there's swine flu and other infectious diseases. From this report, quote, because CAFOs are concentrated animal feeding operations, tend to concentrate large number of animals close together, they facilitate rapid transmission and mixing of viruses. That combined with how we use up to 87% of antibiotics on animals creates ideal conditions for infectious disease. Just look at the swine flu pandemic of 2009, which infected nearly 400,000 people in Asia and killed over 2,000. Whether swine flu, avian flu, or other pathogens, if you care about humans, you shouldn't support this. There are many other ways that buying and eating animal products makes human lives horrible, but I don't have time to cover them all in depth in this video, so I'll just do a lightning round of a couple more. There's our right to clean water. The solid waste produced from a dairy with 2,500 cows is equivalent to a human city of 400,000 people with no wastewater treatment plant. Then there's the leather tanning industry in which workers are exposed to massive amounts of noxious fumes and carcinogens and have increased levels of various cancers. Children as young as 11 also work in some tanneries without gloves, boots, or masks. They work long hours for as little as 50 cents a day. And then there's septic workers who have to clean out septic tanks mainly because of the buildup of cholesterol over time from eating animal products. Disgusting. Congratulations, you made it through all of that horrible stuff. Good on you. And as I mentioned, yes, vegans should absolutely put an emphasis on buying fair trade vegan products like fruits and vegetables. But in the end, if you are in the business of treating animals horribly, you are a lot more likely to treat your human workers horribly. And to all those that say, I am exempt from the human impact of animal products because I only eat local meat from small farms. Do you really? Do you never get shrimp at a Thai restaurant or just whip by a Taco Bell on your way to work or any other restaurant for that matter? A great step to avoid contributing to human rights abuses and the very best step to stop contributing to animal rights abuses is to simply go vegan. Human rights is basic. Good Lord, may no man be denied it. Mm. You, Mr. Lawmaker, take this song to be a reminder. Imagine the outcry by Tea Party Republicans if state legislators were passing laws banning the use of video cameras and banks to capture images of robbers. Yet, those very same Tea Partiers had been passing laws in various states to ban the use of videos to capture images of such giant factory farm operators as Tyson that are engaged in inhumane, immoral, and disgusting abuses of turkeys, hogs, and other animals. The only reason the public knows about chickens being stomped to death and pregnant sows being driven insane because they're caged so tightly that they can't even turn around is because courageous whistleblowers have secretly taped videos of the intolerable violence inside these animal concentration camps. In response to the videoed exposés, however, eight states run by shameless, corporate-hugging Republicans have rushed to protect the worst abusers, making it illegal to release such tapes to the media or the public. North Carolina's corrupt legislature, for example, has decreed that videoers who cause bad publicity for corporate animal torturers can be sued by the corporation and fined $5,000 for each day abuses are recorded.
To add to the Kafkaesque absurdity of this ag-gag law, the state legislature's corporate butt-kissers mandated that releasing videos of abuses in nursing home chains, daycare centers, and veterans' facilities is now also banned. This is Jim Hightower saying, in their eagerness to please corporate lobbyists and get campaign donations from these grossly abusive profiteers, Tea Party Republicans across the country are stomping on our constitutional rights to free speech and freedom of the press, just as mindlessly as the animal abusers stomp chickens to death. For information and action tips on stopping this disgrace, go to ASPCA.org slash Open the Barns. Sorry, but I got that on tape. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight anti-whistleblower ag-gag laws via the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Today we've been focusing on the benefits of moving toward a meatless diet while basically ignoring the topic of animal suffering, and we've done that on purpose because we get that not everyone cares all that much about animals, but everyone should care about the effect of our animal agriculture on human rights, human health, and climate change. Now we're flipping today's activism on its head as well by focusing not on the impact of ag-gag laws on the suffering of animals in slaughterhouses, but on the additional effects of those laws on humans. Thanks to big ag lobbying and money in politics, we are at risk of losing a critical piece of our First Amendment rights because of these ag-gag laws. These laws usually contain one or more of three provisions designed to suppress whistleblowing, the ban of photography or video documentation on facility premises, the criminalization of securing a job under quote-unquote false pretenses, and mandatory reporting of documented abuse within a short and arbitrary time frame. Though a number of states have struck down or overturned these laws due to pressure from animal rights defense groups and federal rulings, Kansas, Montana, North Dakota, Iowa, Utah, Missouri, and North Carolina still have ag-gag laws on the books. These unconstitutional laws threaten animal welfare, workers' rights, food safety, and the environment, but they also take away whistleblower rights across the board. Ag-gag laws actually help set precedents that punish the worker or undercover journalist who exposes neglect and abuse at a retirement home or misconduct at a daycare center or spying by our government on its own people. Then these laws go one step further by protecting the illegal practices and the company that performs them. The Animal Legal Defense Fund Ag-Gag Action allows you to send a message to Kansas, Montana, North Dakota, Iowa, Utah, Missouri, and North Carolina to demand that these laws be repealed. Those who live in these states will be routed to their state representatives, and people outside of these ag-gag states will be routed to the governors of all seven states. Visit the Animal Legal Defense Fund website at adlf.org and search for Take Action to Stop Ag-Gag in their search field to find the action 
description page and send your message. Of course, our segment notes also include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if protecting the First Amendment, whistleblower rights, food safety, and the general ability to expose our big ag food system for the nightmare that it is is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to fight these ag-gag laws via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. In the end, these ag-gag laws force us to fight for our rights and our health, something the animals at the mercy of big meat will never be able to do for themselves. The irony shouldn't be lost on anyone. Distinguished members of parliament and guests, ladies and gentlemen, knowing and doing. There's a very real and imminent threat to our existence that is not found in the headlines of the news because no one wants to talk about it. There's a bit of an awareness gap and no one's willing to step forward and manage it. The film Cowspiracy divulges the massive environmental damage attributed to animal agriculture, providing us with just a glimpse of the many shocking facts, figures, and ratios. Some of these numbers have changed slightly since the film was made, and I'd be happy to review those with you at some point in time later. The reason animal agriculture creates so many sustainability problems is quite simple. It's terribly inefficient, wasting resources, energy, and lives. But what you see in Cowspiracy, the film, is just the very tip of the iceberg. What the film does not spell out are the critical timelines that confront us, as well as the most destructive, insidious constraints that prevent us from proper evolution, including pervasive misuse of the word sustainable itself. We humans have reached a crucial and fragile point in our evolutionary journey as a species. Just in the past hundred years, we've reached the Anthropocene era, where we've acquired the power to negatively change our biosphere the litho, hydro, and atmosphere. We're ruining the very environs that sustain us and all other life on Earth. We're in fact in overshoot mode, demanding more of our planet than what it can provide. It would take one and a half to two full Earths to sustain what we're currently taking from and doing to our planet. In the United States and right here in Belgium and with many other European countries, it would require four or more of our planets to sustain our current lifestyle. In fact, five out of nine planetary boundaries or tipping points of our life support systems on Earth have already been passed, five out of nine. And with the other four boundaries, we're exceeding their tolerance levels. And all nine boundaries are interconnected. As one collapses, the others will soon follow. Although climate change is taking front stage everywhere, especially in Paris this week, we must recognize that it is just one of the nine boundaries. There are a few researchers and organizations who are quite aware of the dire predicament that we're in and the very short timelines that we're faced with. Any of these folks will bluntly tell you that our species is in a state of unsustainability and that we can't remain on this course for very much longer. 
but not one of them is connecting the final dot. They continue telling us that our survival is in peril and that we need to change. But change what? And they make it very clear that we need to stop overconsuming and overproducing. But overconsuming and overproducing what exactly? Energy and fossil fuels and waste are very easy targets for them to point their fingers at. But we now know that the single sector most responsible for nearly all aspects of our unsustainability combined, or what I call global depletion, is that of animal agriculture, the meat, dairy, and fishing industries. Let's take a close look at just a few of the many, many timelines that we're faced with. A 40% shortage in freshwater supplies predicted to occur in just the next 14 years. All topsoil predicted to be lost in the next 60 years. Phosphorus and nitrogen balance irreversibly altered today. Mass extinctions occurring daily. 87% of oceanic fish species are overexploited around the verge of collapse today. Nearly all commercially recognized fish expected to be extinct by the year 2048, and on and on. So we clearly need to quickly change our ecological footprint. We can blame overpopulation, but are we really going to begin culling other humans? We can reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, but that'll take too long, and climate change is, again, just one of the planetary boundaries confronting us. We must remember that climate change is also an exacerbator. It takes matters and makes them worse. At the beginning of the sustainability equation is the word itself, sustainable, which is now seen everywhere, but this word is typically misused and it's ill-defined because rarely, if ever, is food choice properly positioned, especially the raising and eating of animals. Despite its enormous effect, it's simply too challenging for everyone, culturally, socially. This is the reason, though, that we're in a sustainability crisis today. As a global community, we have been too slow in realizing the state of unsustainability that we're in, We've been vastly too slow in making the connection to animal agriculture, and we've been indifferent to act. The future holds some troubling trends. The global human population is predicted to reach 9.6 billion by the year 2050, 2 billion more than we have today, with rising numbers and wealth of the middle class, and the demand for meat and dairy products is expected to double from where it is today. Over 3 billion tons of grain were produced last year in the world, but nearly half of that was given to animals in the meat and dairy industries. We can't blame, therefore, climate change, droughts, or flooding for the world's food security issues. Clearly, the problem is not how or if we can produce enough food to feed the 900 million suffering from hunger or the growing human population, but rather where all the food globally being produced is going. The onus for this predicament lies with our leaders, who have failed us in this regard, our business leaders, academic and funding institutions, civil society organizations, and our policymakers. Sustainable development has been on the international agenda for more than 25 years, with vigorous talk about the economic, social, and ecological components, but in reality, only the economic aspect has been addressed at the detriment of our environment. Even with the new 17 sustainable development goals recently agreed upon, the effect of animal agriculture is not properly positioned, and we must understand that it is our environment that will ultimately sustain our species and society and be the parameter by which wealth is measured. These are just some of the many resource comparisons. You'll be able to pick up much more of these during the film. The formula for success in developing countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, and for developed countries to follow, is to establish models of multidimensional sustainability that I've written about, established on many levels simultaneously with plant-based food systems at the nucleus. Education and international funding should use this as the platform for responsible lending 
to then achieve the highest level of responsible, sustainable development. Today, we're floating around precariously in a zone or state that I call pseudo-sustainability, never getting to where we need to be, but thinking that we are sustainable. That's a very dangerous situation. And for anyone who believes that eating any animal product is sustainable, then it's time to understand the concept of optimal or optimal relative sustainability. That'll work. How sustainable is it to produce and consume any animal product in a relative sense as compared to plant-based foods? Just during the past one hour, over 8 million domesticated land animals were slaughtered. Over 200 million sea animals were caught and killed for us to eat. And 114,000 tons of grain were fed to livestock we're still raising. But during that same one hour, over 350 children in the world died from starvation. These numbers should be zero. This then becomes a matter of ethics, doesn't it? It becomes a matter of social justice. The person sitting next to you who's eating a steak, pork, chicken, cheese, or fish is taking away the resources that could be spread more evenly, more efficiently, and used to support the life of perhaps 20 other people and thousands of other species while helping to mitigate climate change rather than causing it. The Living Planet Index shows that we lost more than half of all animal species in the world just in the last 40 years due to loss of habitat and degradation. Not surprisingly, during that same 40-year period of time, global production of meat and dairy products quadrupled. Instead of ignoring the effect of animal agriculture on climate change, the participants at COP21 in Paris should understand that there are working examples today showing complete mitigation of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions from all sources by way of sequestration, simply by converting feed cropland and grazing livestock pastures to direct plant-based systems. So, animal agriculture weaves its way recklessly through irreversible climate change, loss of land and fresh water, oceanic destruction, loss of biodiversity and rapid rate of extinctions, world hunger, pollution, food pricing and availability, increase in chronic and emerging diseases, regarding our own human health, as well as policymaking and funding. Thus, animal agriculture blocks our evolution to a higher ground toward a healthier, more peaceful, and just planet. In terms of solutions, this is not a time for us to take baby steps or for us to go meatless only on Mondays because we are on very real timelines that extend beyond self into society and future societies, human and non-human life. We're all connected. Eating only local food will not solve the problem because it's not the size of the farm or the miles traveled that causes the problem. It's the type of food being produced. And despite what the United Nations and other gold standard organizations are promoting, this sustainability issue will not be solved simply by advocating eating less meat, which is subjective, inconsistent with the magnitude and the urgency of the problem, and perpetuates irresponsibility with every bite taken. And it mistakenly shifts the focus to seafood. Regarding our oceans, the damage we've done is irreversible in our lifetime. And today, there is no such thing as sustainable seafood, especially if you apply the three key factors of how that word sustainable is defined by the fishing industry itself. And contrary to what everyone would like to believe, raising grass-fed, organic, pastured livestock will not solve the problem either. It'll make matters worse. More land use changes, more deforestation, more methane produced, and a higher feed conversion ratio. It also must be clearly understood that this is not an industrial or a factory farm issue. 
It's a raising animals to eat issue. Farm to table and climate smart agriculture are new catchwords and terms, but these new food movements only make sense if you use our dwindling natural resources to grow plants for direct human consumption. We no longer have room for animals to be configured in the middle of the food production equation for humans. It's become antiquated. It's become obsolete. So how do we solve this? Over the years, I've been proposing two categories of solutions. First, there needs to be widespread, sweeping education of the public and those with a platform of influence. We need to essentially educate the educated. And second, we need to implement initiatives based on that education, such as creating policies which open the doors for businesses and help new and also young farmers and help transition existing farms from animal agriculture to plant-based systems, beginning with the reallocation of the $500 billion per year we spend globally subsidizing the meat, dairy, and fishing industries. In her closing remarks at a recent climate change conference of the parties, the executive secretary of the conference, Christiana Figueres, provided a summary of the conclusions of 200 nations, NGOs, and researchers by stating this about our future, about greenhouse gas emissions, and about climate change. She said this, the science is unquestionable. Therefore, despite the obvious effects on the industry itself, we must call for the elimination of the use of coal as an energy source. And she said, we must do this immediately. Notice that she didn't say we should use less coal or for us to use only local or humane coal. In fact, she said we should eliminate coal, even though coal carries with it roughly the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions, slightly more, depending on who you're reading, than raising livestock does. And coal has no real direct effect on land use changes, water scarcity, world hunger, loss of biodiversity, and all other areas of global depletion, but raising and eating animals does. So the door has been opened, hasn't it, for massive global food choice change. If there is an imminent threat to our planet and to us, which there is, well, we should certainly be able to call for its elimination and for it to be done immediately. Our generations of policymakers today are in a unique situation to help save Earth as we know it, save life on it now, and allow a livable future for those who inherit this planet from us. Or we could allow it to continue on its current path to possibly be destroyed. But we have enough information in front of us to make the right decisions. And in doing so, we will be seen not just as good stewards, but as superheroes who stopped a runaway train with all of us on board and turned it into the direction of optimal sustainability before we went over that cliff. The future of humanity is very likely at stake. So you in this room represent our leaders and you can make this happen. You can inspire others to make this happen, but we have to act today because time is running out.
We just heard clips featuring an interview in two parts on the Rich Roll podcast with the co-directors of Cowspiracy, Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight talking about all the problems with animal agriculture, a segment from Plant-Based News highlighting the booming startup economy of vegan food makers, Mike the Vegan spoke on the relationship between our diets and human rights abuses, Jim Hightower talked about politicians who desire to protect big ag companies and opted to strip constitutional rights rather than allow the company's wrongdoings to be exposed, our activism for today is on those same ag-gag laws and the precedents they set, threatening whistleblower rights that reach far beyond the slaughterhouses of the animal agriculture industry. And finally, we just heard Richard Oppenlander's presentation to the EU Parliament on the climate science related to our food choices. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Jim in the suburbs of Detroit. I just listened to your comment about the idea that raising taxes on the well-to-do or employers will possibly make them hire more people. And if you look at it from a slightly different direction, you'd see that raising the the tax rate on the employer actually reduces the after-tax cost of the employee. If you have an employee, if if the cost of an employee is $1,000 a week and the tax rate is 20%, then the after-tax cost of that employee is $800 a week. Uh, That would be $1,000 a week minus the 20% taxes. If taxes go up to 30%, then the cost of that employee is $1,000 minus 30% or $700. So by actually raising the tax rate, you actually lower the after-tax cost of the employee, which may end up having more employees hired. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Alex from Montreal. I just finished listening to the May Day Mother's Day episode, and I'm calling in response to the voicemails and the idea of making things worse to make them better. I don't know if I could advocate for it, but I think the idea is more intellectually consistent than you give it credit for. My understanding is that it's originally a Marxist idea. Remember, Marxist, not Marxian. Now, the Marxist believes that capitalism cannot be reformed in a meaningful sense, and that it always results in a race to the bottom. Yes, cosmetic reforms can happen, but as long as there is a working class and an upper class, these reforms will eventually be undone by elites and extreme poverty will return. I mean, look at the history of austerity. The Marxist tradition argues that capitalism will always result in greater and greater levels of poverty, that when people get hungry enough, a revolution will happen. This ideological tradition claims that it's inevitable, and the reason for this has to do with Marxist dialectic of history. There's some historical evidence for it as well. Uh, It involves the uh, history of the French and Russian revolutions, but the position itself is certainly an ideological one. Now, the Marxist believes that communism is inevitable, uh, again because of the dialectic, and that eventually things will get bad enough for people to start uh, rising up and destroying the institutions that create inequality. They believe things just have to get bad enough for people to do this. This is where the acceleration of decay comes in. If you believe that a revolution is inevitable, then some Marxists think that you should do anything you can to spark it. You see, the Marxist has two options. They can cause a lot of 
pain and death now, or they can wait and watch children die in factories. They can watch people slowly become hungrier. They can watch the disabled die and the marginalized become worse off. The Marxist might be able to look a trans person in the eye and say, yes, you're going to die because of choices I've made. But if your death makes the revolution come one day sooner, it could save the lives of thousands of Chinese factory workers and Indian factory workers. Uh, your death could save the lives of millions, uh, some of the millions killed in profit-driven wars. Your death could help destroy the auto industry and save the planet from climate change. I'm not saying that I believe any of this. I think it's plausible, but it's dangerous to gamble with lies on something so uncertain. That said, I do think the position is coherent. I mean, the Marxists can point to the corrosion of the New Deal and say, look, this is what happens when you take half measures. This is what happens when you reform the system instead of having a revolution. All your minor gains will eventually be lost, and the longer you drag out the days of capitalism, the higher the mountainous piles of dead will be. Then the Marxists can point to all the profit-driven wars and all the dead workers of the last 80 years and say it was a mistake to elect FDR. He could say that if it were not for FDR, we would have had a revolution, and he might be right. Uh, FDR himself once said his greatest accomplishment was saving capitalism. I don't know if the Marxist is right or not. Personally, I feel his position is a bit dogmatic. I do think it's plausible, but very dogmatic. And I think it's a position we should understand. So, for the sake of argument, let's assume he's right. I will admit I come from a position of relative privilege, but... Uh, I mean, my partner's a POC, and if I had to choose between capitalism killing my partner and it killing a thousand foreign workers, I think I'd choose uh, to save my partner, but I don't know if that's a moral failing or not. Uh, sorry this is a bit long, but uh, thanks for your time. Keep putting out these shows, Jay. I know I really appreciate them. Hey, Jay, this is Brian in Arizona. Okay, I'm persuaded. The conversation can be put to bed. I've been one of the people who've been worried about Hillary Clinton winning the election, not because I disagree with her so much ideologically, but I'm very concerned about a Republican wave in 2020, and we'll come back to that. But the points you made about uh, being a white male and putting other people's needs at risk just to achieve my whatever political long-term goals are compelling and you're right it's not intellectually consistent to play that game. I do have some frustrations with the two-party system. I'm an unapologetic Nader voter from 2000 because I lived in California at the time. But nevertheless, you know, I generally just don't agree that we get one more choice than the Soviets had and therefore yay freedom and democracy. Okay. So I accept the premise, and the Supreme Court's an important reason too, but I accept the premise. We have to rally around the Democratic nominee this year, but that has ramifications for the next election cycles. And the concern is around the census in 2020 and the redistricting that will take place in the states. So the question I want to raise is, given that we're going to most likely see a Republican Party rallied around probably a more marketable candidate, rejecting the results from this election by saying, well, we had a crummy candidate, and they're going to be very unified against Clinton. 
we should expect a very motivated Republican Party in a year that sets the gerrymandered districts for the next decade. So it is important, I think, for the left to get serious about organizing right now around 2020 and what we're going to do in the states in order to combat this. And I would like to start that conversation. I'd be interested in the thoughts of your listeners. Thank you so much for the show. You do a great job. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I thought I was done with the whole election debate, but I had a couple more thoughts about things that I think are often misunderstood, so I wanted to try to clarify those. First, the easy one. I hear this basic argument a lot as represented here by a part of an email I got from Keith. He says, fear can be a terrible thing. They used it to control us after 9-11. For every election, the liberal voter has been manipulated by fear into voting for ever slightly more right-leaning Democrats. We must have the courage to think long-term and not give in to this soft control by the wealthy. Do not let the short-term fears of things like bathroom laws distract you from the long-term form of manipulation they perpetrate. Okay, so let's address the issue of fear of Republican governance. Just about 100% of the people I've heard supporting the basic Bernie or Bust movement have supported that stance with some variation on the idea that a Trump presidency just wouldn't be that bad and that we need to stop fearing having a Republican as president. Now, if we had a recent history that backed up that position, then I would find it a lot more reasonable. But let's think about it. The last time a Republican won the White House, he presented himself as a compassionate conservative and spoke very openly about not blaming all Muslims for the acts of a few terrorists. And then he took the country into an illegal war that killed a million people while literally calling it a crusade. Now we have a guy who presents himself as a fascist, narcissist, pathological liar with borderline personality disorder who says he wants to take severe action against basically every brown person in the country, and we have liberals pinning their hopes on the idea that since he's such an overt liar, he's probably lying about being as fascist as he sounds. That is rock-solid logic. These people make this argument as though we've had a pattern of Republican presidents who we were totally afraid of before they were elected, who turned out to be, you know, not so bad after all in the end. That is not the case. It is literally the opposite of the case. And the last guy who did really unbelievably terrible things not that long ago sounded downright reasonable compared to Trump. Now, here's the thing. Keith is saying that the system is rigged in such a way as to use fear to force voters into picking between only two options, and neither of those options are very good. This is true and terrible and needs to be overthrown. I am not at all blind to that, but it's also real. It's not a hall of mirrors illusion. As much as the two parties are similar and rig the system in their own favor, there are actual differences between the two, and those differences can usually be counted in the lives of brown people abroad and poor people at home. Okay, here's the second point I hear a lot. Also from Keith's email, he hit both of these. He says, 
I am not responsible for the voting of my ignorant neighbor. If Trump wins, it will not be because I helped put him there. It will be because my neighbor helped put him there. I will have voted my conscience and sent my message. Okay, now I agree with that, but I think what we're having here is a miscommunication between moral culpability and mathematical reality. For my part, I've been talking about the math, not the morals, but let's get into that now. A moral vote for the Green Party doesn't make you responsible for anything Trump does if he wins. Just like I don't think that a vote for Nader in Florida in the year 2000 didn't make you morally responsible for the Iraq War. The people who voted for Bush because they genuinely supported him are obviously the most culpable for the actions he took. Now, sort of similarly, any enthusiastic Clinton supporters would be the most morally culpable for actions that she takes as president, whereas someone who pragmatically votes for Clinton just to avoid a Trump presidency, but who then immediately you know, fights against all of her more conservative positions, should be considered to have some, yes, but far less moral culpability for the actions that she takes, even though the value of the votes of an enthusiastic supporter and a grudging pragmatist hold the exact equal weight. And now, if you vote for a third party, do you really have zero moral culpability for the outcome of the election? I would look at it this way. There are three people standing near the edge of a cliff. Person A pushes person B towards the cliff, and person C is standing close enough to try to grab person B before they fall off the edge. There are three possibilities. Person C can try but fail to catch person B, they can try and succeed to catch person B, or they can not try at all. I think we can probably agree that if person C tries to catch their friend, then whether they succeed or fail has no bearing on their level of moral culpability. They did their best, they tried to save a life regardless of the outcome. But what if they decide not to try? Surely, obviously, person A, the pusher, holds the most moral culpability by a country mile. But does person C have no culpability for not trying to help, even though they had the opportunity? Obviously, they don't have as much as person A, but do they have zero moral culpability? That's a tough one. That's what people are basically debating. Now, morality is kind of a squishy thing, and it can be debated endlessly, but math is not squishy, and it cannot be debated in the same way. When it comes to voting, it is very much a binary option. You can either vote or not vote. There are no other options between those. And if you choose to vote, you can only vote once, and you can either vote for a candidate who has a chance of winning, or you can vote for a candidate who you know has zero chance of winning. There are no other options between those in this corrupt, totally rigged, fucked up system that we have right now. Now, I agree that the rationale behind your vote has a huge effect on your moral culpability of the outcome of the race, but it has no effect whatsoever on the math of how that vote turns out. Votes are real, and they have consequences. So here's the deal. I'm not going to go out of my way to accuse you of being morally culpable in the event of a Trump presidency as long as you don't try to argue that your third-party vote isn't mathematically identical to not voting, which is essentially declining to act to avert a probable disaster when you had the chance. 
That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing Wonder what we're doing Can't see past